Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Appearances can be, de- can be deceiving. People are not always what they seem. Don't judge a book by its cover. Familiar phrases that Dennis Johnson says in his uh, commentary that these phrases convey the same lesson. Too often learned only through painful experience. Anyone who's been abandoned by a friend or lover, lied to by an advertiser, or disappointed by a parent or leader, knows that these stories ring true. People are not always what they seem to be. First century Christians might have wondered, how can Rome be so bad when she looks so good? Or how could Rome ever fall when she looks so strong? 21st century Christians living in cultures confident in their affluence and technology may have the same questions. Jesus' answer is the vision of the harlot of Babylon, her beauty and her demise, end quote. Now, the next three chapters of the Revelation, chapter 17 to 19, excuse me, describe the uh, systematic destruction of, of uh, every enemy of God. That's what's being conveyed in these next three chapters. They include the giant red dragon, that's Satan, uh, the beast of the sea, which represent the powers uh, of the world, and the beast of the earth, the false prophet, the false prophet representing um, false spirituality, and the city of Babylon and those who are marked uh, with the mark of the beast. Destruction, to be destroyed, guaranteed, to be utterly wiped out. Uh, chapter 17 is concerned uh, with the nature of the city of Babylon, whose destruction is described in chapter 19. She'll be described to us this morning. Now remember, the beast um, in apocalyptic uh, language is, is symbolic of the state. Uh, whenever... Okay, that is, it's representative of the state. Whenever it takes for itself the rights and the authority um, that belong to God alone. Um, in John's day, the beast was the Roman Empire. There's no doubt about that, uh, which viewed its emperors as deities. And they demanded that everyone worship these deities, bow down before these deities, Um, So that uh, in the long run, people would be granted the ability to buy and to sell, to do business, to live. Now, in line with that, John warns us of another threat. That was one main threat 
of that day. Beside the beast, wielding its sword, is the glamour, the wealth, and the seductive power of Babylon's inner walls. Again, which is symbolic. Babylon didn't exist then. It doesn't exist today. But Babylon continually seeks to entice God's people away from her Savior. That's the allure. The walls of mighty Babylon. Depicted here in the Revelation as the great prostitute, Babylon the great, the mother whore, verse 5, of all other prostitutes. Now, again, when we read Scripture... um, we must remember uh, that the original recipients of these uh, letters, these seven letters to the seven churches, it's important that we remember the context of of their environment, uh, the environment in which um, they lived and the things that they faced. Now, Rome provided all the components of idolatrous worship. It was all there. It was all there to be had. Rome, again, viewed its emperors as deities who demanded worship. And another temptation um, in the midst uh, of uh, these people and these places and these times was the idolatrous feasts held in structures of an idolatrous society. Whereas a result of participation, that is, these idolatrous feasts within these idolatrous structures allowed you the privilege of buying and selling. That's, that's a key component. We'll spend a little more time on that uh, a little later. Uh, but here, the beast's great prostitute is, is very attractive. And she's always been attractive. She's attractive to this day. She's attractive to you and me, whether you realize it or not, whether you admit it or not. She's attractive be- because she promises the pleasures of sensuality and prosperity. Prosperity. Verse 5, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes, of earth's abominations. She's called Babylon because of her wealth. Babylon was very wealthy. Babylon existed um, among the waters, which provided uh, for much uh, maritime wealth. For instance, Jeremiah 51, verse 13, it says, O you who dwell on many waters... Again, we have to understand the Old Testament to understand the imagery. That's why I keep going back. You who dwell by many waters, rich in treasures, your end has come. The thread of your life is cut. Okay, so there she sits, this prostitute. And who comes into this prostitute? Verse 2, kings of the earth. More specifically, divine for us in verse 15 are the waters depicting peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages because kings rule over people. She is Babylon the Great. Now, Babylon, the spirit of Babylon, uh, emerges as early as uh, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11.4, then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let us make a name for ourselves. That sums up the spirit of the matter, does it not? 
Now, Babylon, the Babylonians explained uh, the name, uh, meaning uh, the gate of God. But Babel is an echo of, of the Hebrew for what? Confused. Recalling that God turned mankind's common language into a confusion of tongues. And then, of course, at Pentecost, we see a temporary lifting of that confusion um, is a picture or foreshadowing of something much greater in the future with regard to that judgment. So it, it serves uh, as a mini-portrait of what man has tried to do ever since the fall, and that is build his way to God into a self-deified position. Boasting in his achievements, basking in his pleasures of idolatrous passion. So, not unlike uh, Babel, modern cities uh, boast also of their grandiose towers and buildings, do they not? You have the Eiffel Tower in Paris, you have the Washington Monument in D.C., you have uh, the Canadian Canadian National Tower in um, Toronto, we had the Twin Towers in New York City, which, by the way, the opening ceremony of the Twin Towers in the 1970s marked seven years of construction preceded by ten, or decades, actually, of planning. I looked that up this week. Decades of planning. It's amazing. When in just a matter of hours, they were raised to the ground. Buildings aren't bad in themselves. They're beautiful. They're awesome. It's what they represent. And make no mistake, we live in a heathen land. Amen? We live in a heathen land. You know, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to make fun of, a, of an old hymn, a line in a hymn, written um, in the 19th century by an Englishman. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was pastor of Westminster um, Chapel in London, um, one of our favorites around here. And uh, the hymn spoke of heathen lands afar. Heathen lands afar. And he would mockingly say, heathen lands afar. He said, we don't have to travel far to find heathen lands. Amen? Amen. We only have to walk out our front door. Okay? And you're in Babylon. Now, some of you are here saying, hold on, tiger. Time out. I thought the time between the first and second comings of Jesus was the millennium. It is. You see, the kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom is this world and is the world to come because of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ who rules and reigns now and there's not one square inch of this universe for which Jesus Christ does not reign. Do we get this? Amen. That's the tension of the already and the not yet. Now, the genius of Babylon to deceive the world makes sense because if you're in it, you don't know you're deceived. The deceived don't know they're deceived. That's why there's warnings in Scripture to Christians not to be what? Deceived because we would have the discernment and only ones, the only ones that have such discernment, having the Spirit of God. The deceived don't know they're deceived. So Babylon is the genius work of the enemy to deceive. She's attractive. So Babel signals man 
not only apart from God, but in opposition to God. In opposition to God. It is the passion, the power, the prestige, and the pomp of the Babylonian spirit. That's what's in view. Now, the vision given to John here in this section exposes uh, the Babylonian harlot's superficial, skin-deep attractiveness, which explains how she can be charming and appealing, not only to pagans, but also to Christians. She is appealing. She's appealing to me in my flesh, I'll tell you that. That's why you've got to crucify the flesh. Jesus knows that his churches can be incredibly gullible. Thus the warnings to the seven churches. Remember back in Revelation 2? The church of Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 20. Look at this. I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So the temptation for believers, those called out ones, those called out of the world, the temptation was to join the local guild trades here in Thyatira in order to maintain employment, i.e. to buy and to sell. All of which is centered on this figure named Jezebel, which, who was likely not a real literal woman named Jezebel. But like the harlot of Babylon is not a literal harlot. If you're an absolute literalist, you're going to have a real problem with chapter 17 and this whore and who she is and where she is and and all of that. Even dispensationalists don't literally see her as a literal woman. Jezebel is not, I don't believe, a literal woman. The Lord uses Jezebel, this comparison, to recall that evil wife of Ahab. Remember in 1 Kings? Who led Israel astray, generating compromise. The suffering of the people. So he, he uses the name Jezebel as a picture of, of deception and idolatrous seduction. That's the picture. That woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. So whoever this self-professed prophetess was in Thyatira was inciting a sinful lifestyle to God's people, seducing the saints into idolatrous worship a portrait of the whore of Babylon. A local picture, if you will. (laughs) So, in their day, in in the first century, it was, uh, they were encouraged to to pay homage to uh, pagan deities. The, The towns were full of them. They were all over the place. Temples on every quarter, corner. And by showing allegiance, uh, you were able to maintain association with the building trade or the business trade. And you would have to join this trade guild. 
trade guild rather. And trade guilds were like b- belonging to the local labor union. To work, you had to be part of this, to, to participate in, in economic life. So to stand against them, because along with them came pagan worship, idolatrous feasts. And guess what went along with idolatrous feasts? Sexual immorality to come into contact with these deities. It was all interwoven. So the message of this prophetess was the promotion of participation in these food sacrifices, temple worship, um, and being part of these uh, local guilds. So the reasoning was of this uh, woman Jezebel, just pay homage. You know, the false deities really don't mean anything. Pay your dues. Just pay your dues and you'll be able to do business. So politics, business, religion, and commerce were all interwoven together. This was the temptation for Christians in the first century. If you stand against it, you don't eat. You don't buy and sell. Those who take the mark of the beast can buy and sell. And again, the mark is figurative. So it was thought to be economic suicide to reject the requirements, the requirements for guild membership. So it's quite possible this woman Jezebel was teaching that morality and lifestyle was insignificant as a Christian. It's really not part of spirituality. Spirituality is separate from the physical. So, you're urged to participate. That was the false teaching in the church of Thyatira. So, it's not difficult then, beloved, to see the parallel being drawn between this heresy in Thyatira and the system known as Babylon depicted at the end of the Revelation. It's very easy to see the parallel, the comparison, the similarity. So the similarities here between this fictitious woman, Jezebel, and the description of the harlot of Babylon in chapter 17 and 18, again, very, very similar. Look at verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Seated on many waters, having power, having influence on peoples, multitudes and languages. Again, verse 15. She exercises here some level of sway over peoples over nations, the nations in which these people dwell. And the tool that she is wielding is sexual immorality. Notice just verse 2 and following, which we don't have time to read over and over again. But again, this is not a literal woman. So this is not a literal woman who's literally fornicating with men around the globe. It has nothing to do with physical sex. This is a metaphor for spiritual adultery, for idolatry unfaithfulness. The question is, what kind of adultery or idolatry? It's the idolatry of economic prosperity. 
the idolatry of economic prosperity and affluence. Anything wrong with having money? No, I'd like to have a little more, but I'm content, but... There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's, it's the spirit of this. this. This prostitute radiates great wealth. So at one level, the, the beast is Rome. In the first century, this beast is Rome. But, friends, this beast transcends Rome. It's much bigger than first century Rome. Remember the prophecy of Daniel 7 where he saw various beasts, each one symbolizing power, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and finally, Rome. So the beast that John sees in Revelation combines elements of all those beastly images depicted for us back in Daniel 7. Showing us on one level that indeed it is Rome, but on a more profound level, again, it transcends Rome, and she's alive today in America. Now, as the beast threatens the church with the sword, the prostitute also threatens the church, but she does so with compromise. The threat is compromise through economic seduction. Just like in Thyatira. And again, like the beast, she transcends Rome. She exists everywhere. So in John's day, she was the latest and greatest incarnation of this prostitute, but not the last. She wasn't the first either. That's why the Lord goes back by way of divine inspiration to Babylon. A great power, great economic wealth. And by her image, she is an image, she sways people to fornicate with her. Promising economic affluence. The woman, look look at how she's described, verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes of the earth's abominations. She's alluring. She's beautiful. Her jewels, her attire are alluring. She's hot put it in the vernacular. And the, the wealth that people seem to acquire when they're with her is alluring. It's a draw. And again, there's a mark on her forehead. Here's an identification of allegiance. It is said in this day that prostitutes wore their name on some kind of headband. I don't know if that's true or not. I just read that. So this reminds us that what the world offers is appealing. Let's not kid ourselves. Amen? It is what stimulates. John said this in 1 John. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. It's for Babylon. 
Dennis Johnson says this, quote, Materialism, no less than persecution, is the serpent's weapon of war against Christ's church. End quote. She's alluring. Any believer who thinks he or she is immune to the temptation of the prostitute really is gullible. Truly is gullible. Because this is what our flesh yearns for. This is what our flesh wants. That is the temptation that we face every given day. Stuff and things and sex are not evil in themselves. Amen? Of course they're not. Wanting a sexual relationship is natural because God invented it. God has given it to us. Wanting beautiful things is not sinful. Loving symmetry is not sinful. We like beauty. We like proportion. We like loveliness. I like things that are nice. Do you not like things that are nice? Does our, when you pull into this church, does, do, do the grounds not look lovely? Do we want a dried out weed garden like the lot next door? Of course not. <laughs> However, the prostitute wants to define what is beautiful and symmetrical and sell it her way. That's what she does. She's masterful. You know, prostitutes turn tricks. This is a trick. And she has a no-return policy in the way she sells things. And that is, you can come to me, you can buy from me, but you will not bring Jesus into the deal. That's what she says. You must alienate yourself from this Jesus. You must alienate yourself from his people. If not... At the least, banishment. At the most, death. Or at least in our day. In our day, you will suffer the onslaught of the intolerance of tolerance touted by the, literal, the, the, the liberal, politically correct movement of our day. That's Hollywood. You will not work in Hollywood and bring your Jesus with you if you want to work. Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This, this woman, as one commentator put it, I quote, represents fallen human culture in the apparent glory of its achievement and the true repugnance of its arrogance. That is what this woman is a picture of here. And in verse 6, she's, she's inebriated, stoned to the bone. Verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. The blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, John says in this vision, I marveled greatly. So her drink, her cocktail, is made up of the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, true believers. 
who did not go to bed with her. And that comes as a result of refusing to serve Babylon's economic interest or to, to, to submit to the self-proclaimed sovereignty of the beast. That's all the imagery that, that we're seeing here. They refuse to take his mark and, and are unable to profit from the system. Now, again, some argue that this is only first century Rome being described. Uh, some dispensationalists uh, refer to this as the Roman Catholic Church. She is the whore of Babylon. No. She is very, quite simply, a timeless allure, a draw. And she seduces to this day. The whole world is under her spell. The whole unredeemed world is under her spell. Listen to this description. The allure of the prostitute. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. So she's aligned with the beast. That is satanically influenced. She has seductive powers symbolized here by prostitution and seducing people to blaspheme God. And she allures them to drink from her cup. Verse 7, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with seven hands and ten hordes that carries her. The beast you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Interesting, isn't it? Notice the parody there. The parody of the formula who was and who is and, his, and who is to come, which is applied to God. So the beast is a counterfeit of the sovereign Savior, and God, by way of divine inspiration, describes, uh, this, describes him with, with a mockery. And by, behind the mockery is a very serious point. The beast and all his perpetuated evil is forever attempting to mimic, by way of re- reflection, the triune God, the one true God. So uh, the work of evil is, is a negative parody of, of God's work, of God's gracious work. Satan attempts to rule in godlike fashion. We'll learn this morning, everybody serves somebody. Everybody in the world is worshiping somebody or something. So he demands religious devotion. Now his failure to be able to maintain control over the whole world sends him into a fit of rage. That is warfare against Christ. And warfare against Christ shows up is warfare against God's people, Christ's people, but all to no avail. Now, we've got we to gotta hurry. In verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven hands are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. 
Now, John's vision is so complex, there's a cry, verse 9, for a mind with wisdom. And part of what John means, make no mistake about it, is that without the revelation of Scripture, i.e., what we call the Old Testament, together with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, of books like Exodus, Daniel, and Jeremiah, without that kind of wisdom, you will be led astray in your interpretation of this. And thus the result of crazy predictions and books in our day. Now that being said, his explanation requires much explanation. It's well known that, that uh, Rome geographically sat on seven hills. Imperial Rome of this day. That's what we're talking about. Mountains and kings represent the beast's worldwide authority. We learned that back in chapter 13. Seven speaks of universality. Its influence is universal. Okay, now, five have fallen. One is, the other has not come. Now, I'll tell you this. Commentators have spilled a lot of ink. A lot. So as to identify some historical reference here in this formula. Uh, it's cited as uh, the Caesars of Rome, which if you look it all up, I don't have time for that. It's a pretty good argument. Um, but if, if that's the case, who do you start counting with? Do you start with Julius Caesar? Do you start with Augustus? Where do you start? Now, I don't, I don't want to pretend this morning that I've calculated some formula made up of uh, world emperors. I'm not even going to cite the ones who have. But instead, it makes a lot more sense that these seven hills also synonymous with kings in Scripture, are symbolic of powerful nations by the number seven. Okay? Symbolism, symbolism, symbolism. Throughout the prophets, mountains are often symbolic of great power in connection with the rule of pagan empires. God actually refers to ancient Babylon as a destroying mountain. And these are keys for our interpretation. Jeremiah 51, 25. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. So this mystery is more likely providing us a sevenfold imagery of that. who've almost come to their end, okay? Five have fallen. One is, and one is to come for a short time. So that is to say, from God's perspective, to consummate his kingdom under the scepter of the Lamb of God who rules now, the beast time is short. It's short. It was short then, it's even shorter now. And it's short because Christ has risen from the dead, has ascended into heaven, has expelled the devil, he's been thrown down to earth, thrown in the abyss, and it says his wrath is great because he knows his time is short. Chapter 12, verse 12. That same truth is reflected right here in chapter 17. As five of the seven are fallen, one is and one is to come briefly. Verse 11, as for the beast that was and is not... It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. That is referring to the last battle yet once again. 
How many times have we seen this last battle? And it will be destroyed. Now, chapter 20, that says at the end of a thousand years, okay, that is a a prophetic way of speaking of the span between Christ's first and second coming. He's locked in the abyss with a long chain. He's on a chain, but he's, he's, he's kept from doing what? Deceiving the nations. You have no idea how deceived the nations were before Christ came. We haven't a clue. There was one nation that knew God and was known by God, Israel, and they still fell into the deception of the nations around them. They still fell time and time again. So what did God do? He brings Babylon against them. And then later on, he judges Babylon for taking his people captive because he's sovereign. It's amazing. At the end, scripture, the scripture says the beast will be released from his captivity. That is, from deceiving the nations, will be released for a short time to gather the deceived for the great battle. It's just another picture of the last battle again. That's all it is. So last time we saw the same imagery when the Euphrates was dried up, right? Literal Euphrates? No, it's metaphorical making it possible for kings from the east, which would have been enemies of the Roman Empire, enemies of Israel, kings from the east, to make war on God's people, i.e. the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are all pictures. These are all snapshots of that final battle, just using different metaphors to describe the same final event. That's what we see. It's just complementary Imagery. So, you got all that? Okay, to be clear, this woman is not literal. She is a seductress, influencing the world by way of enticement. That's what prostitutes do. And this is a very good looking one. You don't get better looking than this. And it's to entice people away away from the one true God into idolatry. The whole world, they're idolaters. Well, they're lost. That's right. They're created in the image of God to worship the Creator. But by the grace of God, we've been released from that idolatry. We've been released from that grip of the enemy by the grace and the power of God. So her existence, this whore, is transhistorical. She corresponds to to human history until final judgment. She rides on top of the beast. The image of Antichrist power. So she existed long before John's day. She existed in John's day and she exists today. Whose lips drip with honey, whose speech is smoother than oil. Now, the antithesis... The exact opposite of Babylon the Great, guess who, guess who it is? The New Jerusalem. So Babylon the Great isn't a literal city. The, the New Jerusalem isn't a literal city. Those represent people. Amen? The world and Christ's church. And a prostitute cannot give to you what a bride can. It'll always be inferior. 
Babylon the Great is the counterfeit of the New Jerusalem. And the irony is that the prostitute says she deceives the world into believing that the New Jerusalem cannot provide what she can. That's the deception. The New Jerusalem wants to withhold good things from you. Because what I give is good, and it feels good, and it looks good. The New Jerusalem can't provide that when just the opposite is true. This is where the deception comes in. The promises of Babylon are always inferior. Amen? Creation cannot give you something better than the Creator. That's the picture. This isn't something that's going to go on the last seven years of history. It's going on now. It was going on then. Let's get our eschatology right, beloved. Because if you don't, you can't benefit from it. You can't receive the blessing promised in the first chapter. Amen? You'll never receive the blessing if you don't understand it correctly. Her arms are wide open. And she says, you can come to me. I will give you what you desire, I promise, but you cannot bring your Christ with you. That's the cost. Alienation from Christ and his people. And as hard as people try, you can't have both. Many people try to have both. You can't have both. You cannot lay with a prostitute and walk with the bride. Amen? Now, I want you to, lastly, I want to show you a a comparison of these opposites, the opposites between these two women. So open to chapter 17 and put your finger in chapter 21 so that we can go back and forth quickly. In 17 verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who seated on many waters. Chapter 21 verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the, last, of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Prostitute, bride. Tw- uh, 17 verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into a what? Wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven hens and ten horns. Chapter 21 verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. 17.4 The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations. 21.11 Here she is having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Her antithesis is the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. The whore is outwardly adorned. The bride radiates with beauty from within because of her groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the battle ends with destruction and final judgment of the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon himself, who, in the end, turns on the woman. He's going to turn on her quickly. Verse 16, 
Then the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Who puts it into their hearts? God. So the beast anger is turned on, turns on this harlot. Just like a pimp, okay? Just like a pimp discards one of his prostitutes the moment her glory fades. That's what they do. And he serves as her pimp. I couldn't find any synonymous terms with pimp, so I just say pimp. (laughs) To, To be more gentle. Let's be real if you're offended. So this is God using, as it were, the beast to destroy the woman in the end. Okay, I'll close with this. I'm already over time. Let me close with a comment from Kim Riddlebarger. Quote, When the time of the end finally comes, Satan's kingdom will be divided against itself, the first casualty being the harlot. The very same kings and nations who committed spiritual adultery with her will now turn on her, strip her naked, and then burn and destroy her. Just as ancient Rome fell under the weight of its own immorality when sacked by the very nations who profited from Roman trade and order, so too the final manifestation of the harlot will see her come to an end at the hands of those whom she had seduced. Ironically, the beast will himself become the agent by which God brings judgment upon the great prostitute, for God puts it in the, in the beast's heart to hate the harlot. Her, her beauty's skin deep. So once she's destroyed, the second woman will be revealed in all her royal beauty, in all of her splendor and worth given to her by her husband. And that is the new Jerusalem sending down on heaven, the bride of Christ owned by the lamb, the bride of the groom. Amen?